Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today I will be reading from 2 Thessalonians 2. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now that you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be accordance to with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and that they will all be condemned who have not believed the truth, but be delighted in their own wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we have passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us internal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word.
Here at GCA, we are convinced of an absolutely sovereign God. Are we in agreement so far? Yes. Only if you believe in an absolutely sovereign God can you read the book of Revelation for what it actually says. If you believe that human beings are saved by their free will choice to make Jesus their Lord and Savior, then when you read the book of Revelation and you discover that nobody is getting saved during this whole period of God's wrath, that will rub you wrong. You will insist that no, God still has to give people an option to be saved even as these tribulation things are pouring out. Even as the wrath of God is pouring out, God would still have to give you some kind of opportunity to be saved, which is why you have books like Left Behind and why you hear phrases like tribulation saints. Only if you understand God's sovereignty are you comfortable with the fact that the book of Revelation just doesn't say anything about God saving people during this period of him pouring out his wrath. Now, granted, within Israel, he has kept himself a remnant. Jesus has told them to flee to the wilderness. Daniel has told them where to flee. And so there is a remnant being protected the same way that God, when he poured out his plagues in Egypt, would protect the children of Israel in Goshen. The same idea here, when God pours out his wrath, He's going to preserve his people in Edom and Ammon and Moab. However, when it comes to the church, the church is already in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to read about in chapter 19, and you don't find anything in the entirety of the book of Revelation after John finishes the letters to the churches and then John is told to come up hither and then he begins this revelation. From that point forward, you just don't see anybody on the planet getting saved in the book of Revelation. It's just not in there. Now, we're okay with that if you believe in the sovereignty of God. If you believe that God has made up the complete number of the church if you believe that he knows exactly how many people he's saving because he wrote their names down before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you know that he is making up a definite number that he is giving to his son and that they constitute his bride and then the marriage supper of the Lamb is occurring in heaven as all of this wrath and tribulation is being poured out on the planet, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you're okay with all that. And yet I have heard so many commentators and so many preachers preaching through the book of Revelation, talking about how these punishments from God, these outpourings of his wrath, are actually just God trying to get people's attention so that they will make a decision for Christ and be saved. But we don't see that. Instead, what we see is the people on the planet continually turning their backs on God, continually hardening their hearts. When Christ does return, people are running for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and saying, fall on us. And we've seen repeatedly that as God pours out these wrathful moments on the planet, like heat scorching the people on the planet and the water supply has been dramatically lessened, what we see is people cursing God. 
and being angry at God. What you don't read in the book of Revelation is how people are getting saved. Now, what we do see is 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So apparently they are witnesses to Israel specifically. But what we have seen is a continual lessening and lessening and lessening of the faith of God on the planet, which is why Jesus asked the question, when I return, will I find faith in the land? What we're seeing in the book of Revelation so far is that there is a decrease, a continual decreasing of faith, and you don't see people getting saved. Have I driven this point home enough yet? If anybody can think of any verse in the book of Revelation that I have somehow missed that talks about people being saved and added to the church during the tribulation, please tell me, because I don't find it anywhere. Instead, what I see is an absolutely sovereign God making up the body of Christ, and there are no missing pieces when the body is assembled. What I see is sovereign God making up the bride of Christ as a gift to his son, and there are no missing portions of that bride. Instead, what you see is completeness. What you see is a plan unfolding. What you see is God absolutely sovereignly doing what an absolutely sovereign God would do. So today, hopefully, if I talk fast enough, we will get to the two witnesses. Now, why are they emphasized this way, the two witnesses? Because in the book of Revelation, boy, John has been saying just brief things about a whole lot of terrible things going on. But he just mentions it. I saw this, and I saw that, and there were hailstones, and there was fire, and there were people dead, and there was a, and he just says it. And then he gets to the two witnesses, and he employs an awful lot of ink to talk about these two witnesses. So they appear to be very important. But are these two witnesses for the purpose of saving more people? You don't read that anywhere. You don't read that anybody converts because of the two witnesses. What we're going to read is that when they finally kill the two witnesses, there's parties in the street. People even give gifts because they're so excited to be rid of the two witnesses. By the way, that's just the word marturus, martus, variations of that Greek word. The word actually is the, the foundation for our word martyr. It is translated witness, but it is laying down your life for what you believe, for the testimony of Christ. These two witnesses, you don't see any text here about how they go out preaching come to Christ or how they go out and preach the finished gospel work of Jesus. You don't read any of that. What you read is how they were confrontational with the whole world. And so you can see why the world is really excited when they're gone. So their purpose seems to be, first there were 144,000 who appear to be witnesses to Israel. Then finally there's two witnesses who seem to be witnesses primarily to Israel and to the rest of the world who celebrate when they're gone. And then after that, we're going to see an angel flying in the heavens proclaiming the everlasting gospel. And that's the end of the witnessing, and the wrath of God is poured out to complete everything that the prophets have said about the wrath of God. So what we see is 
144,000 witnesses. And you see two witnesses. Then you see an angelic witness. And nobody gets converted. So what are they doing? Why are they there? Why do they even exist? Why does God send them into the world if nobody's getting converted by them? They are out there telling the truth so that everybody on the planet is guilty. Right now, here in America and in most of the Western world, it's very difficult to find a human being who has not heard the name Jesus Christ. Even if they've only heard it as an epithet or a swear word, they know the person is a historic person, whether they've ever given him any real thought. The very fact that his name is so pervasive in our society proves that he must have had some kind of impact on the history of the world at some point. What I'm trying to say is it's really difficult to find somebody who is utterly ignorant of Jesus Christ. And you know what that means? They're guilty. Why are the two witnesses witnessing and doing miracles that are undeniable miracles? That kind of miracles that if you and I saw, we'd be like, okay, these guys are something special. When they're calling down fire from heaven, that's not a normal, typical Sunday afternoon activity. We'd have to say, okay, these guys are special. They're unique. And does anybody convert because of them? No. They kill them because of it. So, guilt, guilt, guilt. God is just building up the guilt of mankind, all those who are left on the planet, because the church is in heaven, again, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, as these things are taking place on the planet. I'm okay with all that. Are you okay with all that? If you're okay with that, it's because you understand that God is sovereign. If you think that human beings get saved by an act of their will because God loves everybody the same way and he is just supremely fair with everybody, then you have to insert the notion that human beings still have free will even at this point and that they're just rejecting but they have no free will because they do nothing but reject. Their will is incapable of choosing God. Their will is incapable of choosing salvation. They do the only thing their nature and will is capable of, which is rejecting God over and over and over again. And that's everything we believe about the depravity of mankind. And so yet again, I contend that you can only read the book of Revelation for what it actually says, and you can only understand what it says if you believe in an absolutely sovereign God, because this is a demonstration and unveiling of Jesus Christ as being the sovereign king and lord that he actually is, which is why at the end of the book we're going to see him returning again, king of kings, lord of lords, because he's sovereign. You get it? That was all introduction. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off, and we're going to go back a little bit because I recall that last week I even handed out a couple of verses to be read that we then never read because I was working against the clock and trying to sum everything up. And so this morning we're going to go back and look at those verses because they're going to help us understand this concept of the two witnesses. Starting in chapter 11, verse 1. 
There was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, to the nations. They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. 1,260 days. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So this period of time when the Gentiles are trampling the holy city underfoot is the same time period where these two witnesses are prophesying. Jesus talked about this very thing back in Luke 21. So let's begin the morning in Luke 21. Let's hear what Jesus has to say about that. We're going to start reading at verse 10 in Luke 21. Luke 21 is the parallel passage to Matthew 24. And so far in this study of the book of Revelation, I have studiously avoided Matthew 24 to just concentrate on Revelation. But we're going to have to at some point go through Matthew 24 because it coincides with so much of Revelation. The parallel passage to Matthew 24 is here in Luke 21. So some of this is going to sound familiar. Chapter 21, verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, this is after they have questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So he continued and said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, so before all of the famines and the earthquakes and the terrors and the signs in the heavens, before all those things, they're going to lay hands on you and they're going to persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. He said that directly to his apostles. Did that happen? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what happened to them. Go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Every one of the 12 apostles ended up being tortured to death because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. With the exception of John, who lived longer, but ended up on the Isle of Patmos. That seems kind of torturous. And so he said to them, before all those other things take place, before the earthquakes in various places, before the plagues and the famines that are coming, before the great terrors, which I think is what we're reading about in the book of Revelation, and the great signs from heaven, like the sun and the moon and the stars going dark and then the sign of the man appearing in heaven. But before all of those things... They're going to lay their hands on you, and they're going to persecute you, and they're going to deliver you to the synagogues and to prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your mind not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom 
which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, and yet not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. The subject here is Jerusalem, and you're going to see it surrounded by Gentile armies. When you see that happen, you're going to know that her desolation is at hand. He is answering the question they asked back in verse 7, Teacher, when therefore will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He went to the same thing that John just saw that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by the Gentiles. They're going to trot it underfoot for three and a half years. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter back into the city. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about running out of Jerusalem. Where are they going to be running to? The very places Daniel told them to run to, to Edom, to Moab, to Ammon. Also, by the way, is he speaking to the church of all time at this moment? And is he telling the church to flee to the mountains from Judea? So when we see these things happen, do we all need to get on an airplane, fly to the Middle East, get ourselves to Judea so that we can flee there? No. No, he's clearly talking to the residents of Judah. The residents of Judea are to flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of Jerusalem get out of there. And let not those who are out in the country, out in the fields, don't go back into the city. Because these are the days of vengeance. In order that all things that are written may be fulfilled. Again, sovereign God just fulfilling what he has already told the prophets he is going to do. And even the time of trouble, tribulation, the wrath of God is a fulfillment of what all the prophets have said. And then look at verse 23 and 24. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. What people? Israel. Again, Jesus says the same thing. John says the same thing I'm driving at, which is that the book of Revelation is about Israel. It's a very, very Jewish book, and it's not talking about instructions for the church or how to get saved. This is going to be a time of great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations. There's yet again more evidence that he's talking specifically to the people of Judea. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to Israel because they are going to fall by the sword and then be led captive into the place of the Gentiles. So both groups are delineated in this passage. They'll be led captive into all the nations 
and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. How long is that time of the Gentiles? Three and a half years. We found that out in the book of Revelation. And the language is the same. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's exactly what John just told us. That Jerusalem was going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for three and a half years. Jesus refers to that period of time as the time of the Gentiles because it's the time period during which Jerusalem is going to be trodden underfoot by Gentile armies and Gentile nations. Verse 25, following that, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth and dismay of nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves and men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon this world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, this is really important. Who's he talking to? Israel. Israel. He said there is a time of great distress coming upon this people. There's wrath coming upon this people. But when you see these things take place, when you see the sign of the Son of Man, when you see the Son of Man himself coming in a cloud with great power and great glory, when you see these things take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. My whole life I have heard that passage applied to the church. Look up, your redemption's drawing near. You're going to see Jesus come back when he's coming back to get the church. Look up, your redemption's drawing near. That's not the context that Jesus put it in. He is telling Israel, because all of the prophets have all prophesied with one voice, that there is going to be a redemption and restoration of Israel, and that he's going to reestablish Jerusalem and Judah and David's greater son. Jesus is going to rule from a throne in Jerusalem. He can say then to those very people, the people of Judea, who Daniel told to flee, those people who are going to undergo the wrath, those people who are going to still be on the planet and see the Son of Man coming in a great cloud. He says, when you see that, straighten up, lift up your heads, because the redemption of Israel is coming near. You got it? Of course, then he goes on and says, since he said, when you see these things, he says, behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as you see them put forth leaves, you know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things that I just described happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That is the Greek word genea. I'm not going to go into it in any great depth, but if you want to, go look at my latest YouTube video that is called genea. The Greek word genea there is our root word from which we get genealogy. The word genea means people of a common descent, people of a common heritage. And so he is saying, I say to you, this genea, these people of a common heritage, the Israelites, the Jews that he is speaking to, will not pass away until all these things take place because he's going to preserve them through all of these things that are going to take place. I have heard so many preachers misunderstand the English word generation there and claim then that within 40 years all these things had to take place 
And that's where you get post-millennial reconstructionist kind of theology. But if you just understand that little Greek word genea, you can understand that Jesus is saying the exact same thing that all the prophets have said, which is that the wrath of God is coming on Israel, but they will be saved through it. What did Daniel tell us? It's a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And then the angel tells Daniel, but your people will be preserved through it, all those who are written in the book. When Jeremiah talks about a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, he talks about it as being the time of Israel's trouble, but he'll be delivered through it. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Truly I say to you, this Ganea, this people group, will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. By the way, if his words will never pass away, and he has just declared that Israel is going to survive all that because they're about to become this great kingdom, is that going to happen? Yes. Yeah. The same way that he said to his apostles, you're going to be delivered up and killed for your witness of me, and then that actually happened just earlier in this same chapter? Well, then everything else he says in this chapter, we have to conclude, is also going to come true, which includes when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near, which includes when you see these things taking place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near, which includes, truly I say to you, this Ganea, this people group will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Sounds like a pretty sure guarantee from Jesus to me. Go back to Revelation 11. Measure the temple, the naos, I told you was the word last week. It means the sanctuary, the very inner courts. And then leave out the court which is outside the temple, do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles, to the nations, so that they can tread it underfoot. And they'll tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Do you see where John and Jesus are both talking about the exact same thing? And Jesus talked about it when he was here on the planet. And then John, early 90s AD, is on the Isle of Patmos, and it's confirmed to him yet again. I just don't see it as being vague in any way. Jesus is dealing with Israel, the people who were his first chosen people. He is not talking about the church in any of these passages. And the Gentiles who are not getting saved are trampling the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for the exact same period of time, 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Why are they clothed in sackcloth? Throughout the Bible, when people are clothed in sackcloth, that is a sign of mourning. That is a sign of repentance. Has anybody here ever worn sackcloth? It would be like getting a burlap potato bag and putting it on. It's really uncomfortable. It's very itchy. It's meant to be that way. It's meant to keep you in discomfort. These two witnesses are going to be testifying, and at the same time, they're a sign of the mourning 
that has come on the planet because of all of these plagues and the wrath of God being poured out. And it's a sign of repentance. And this planet is only going to find two repentant people on it, these two witnesses. Now, last week, we went to Zechariah 4, and we read about the two witnesses. Flip over there for just a moment. Tom, once again, look up Isaiah 42, 6. Micah, if you would, look up Isaiah 49, 6. And hopefully this week, we'll actually get to those two. Everybody else go to Zechariah 4. Last week, I read the whole of Zechariah 4, which I will not do today, but I will just point out the specifics of what Zechariah sees. The angel I was speaking to returned and roused me as a man who had been awakened from his sleep. Verse 2, he said to me, what do you see? And I see, I said, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl at the top of it. This was a bowl that was being filled with oil that was feeding each of the seven lampstands so that the flame would continue. And its seven lamps on it with seven sprouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it and also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then there's a continuing conversation about Zerubbabel. Look down at verse 11. I answered and I said to him, what are the two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered a second time, and I said to him, What are the olive branches which are beside the golden pipes, which empty their golden, the word oil is implied there, they empty the golden oil from themselves. The picture then being there's these two olive trees. They are emptying their golden oil through these golden pipes down into the bowl and from the bowl out to the seven lamps so that the seven lamps are continuously burning. He answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. What does this image mean? We're not told. However, the vast majority of commentators that I have found and read pointed out that throughout the Bible, an olive tree is a symbol or an emblem of Israel. And so... If the olive trees are pouring into a lamp that is continually lit, it is demonstrating that Israel is meant to be a light to the whole rest of the world. Very much like Jesus says that we who hear his word, that we are supposed to be a light to the world. Before there was a church, there was only Israel who were supposed to be that light of the world which is said in Isaiah 42, 6, which Tom, who has waited a whole week, is now going to read to us. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I'll give you a covenant to the Goyim. I'll give you, Israel, as a light to the whole rest of the nations. I have revealed myself to Israel. I have given them the prophets. I have given them my law. I have given them the covenants. 
But the reason I am doing that is so that they will be a light to the whole rest of the world. And that seems to be the image that Zechariah is looking at here. Isaiah, to really drive this point home, says it yet again in chapter 49, verse 6, which Micah is now going to read for us. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I will make you, Israel, a light to the nations so that my salvation reaches the ends of the earth. You've heard me say it so many times for so many years, but I just want to demonstrate that the Bible keeps saying it, which is Israel is meant to be a blessing to the world, and the blessings of God pour through Israel out to the Gentile nations. So much of the modern Gentile church has tried to eliminate Israel from that equation as if God is going to bless them directly now in exclusion from Israel. But in what Micah just read, God referred to Israel as his chosen ones. The same way that we like to say, well, we're being saved because we're the elect. We're the elect Gentiles. Our names are in the book. We're the elect. That language of election, that language of choosing, belonged to Israel first. And that is why Paul in the book of Romans would ask questions like, is God going to abandon those whom he foreknew? And his answer is, God forbid. That's not going to happen. That's not the way God works. By the way, if God could decide, after calling Israel his beloved, after calling Israel his wife, after calling Israel his elect, his chosen, after calling them all that, if he could turn his back on them collectively and say he's done with them, how much confidence do you have in your election? Because God apparently can just change his mind. Well, that's a capricious God. That is not the sovereign God we find in the Bible who makes up his mind how the end of all human history is going to come out and then sets about with his everlasting almighty power to make sure that it comes out exactly that way. Which means you're secure, but it also means so is Israel. And so is the kingdom that Jesus said is coming. So is David's greater son sitting on David's throne. All of that that the Bible predicts over and over again through all the prophets, through the New Testament, that is all going to happen. That all has to happen or you have no security eternally. All I'm arguing for here is the veracity of God's word, reading it for what it says, and being able to approach it knowing that God is absolutely sovereign. That's the only way to let it say what it says. So let's talk about the two witnesses. Go back to Revelation. Back to Revelation 11. Who are these two witnesses? Now, I'm not going to say definitively that I know who they are, but there's a theory, and I think it's a pretty convincing theory. And I'm going to show you all the evidence for the rest of this morning for why I find it a pretty convincing theory. Commentators argue that these two witnesses might very well be Moses and Elijah. We're going to start this morning by talking about whether or not one of them could be Elijah. But let's first read 
what they do, and then we'll start making connections. Verse 3 of chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. That's the exact language that the angel used in the book of Zechariah, that these are the two who stand before the Lord of all the earth. If they are the two olive trees that are constantly feeding that golden oil to make the lampstand constantly lit, and that lampstand represents Israel, if that is true, and if they are, in fact, Moses and Elijah, well, then Moses and Elijah were constantly feeding Israel. Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Moses, the one who brought the law, they are feeding Israel so that Israel can be a light to the world. That would be the imagery. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anybody does any harm to them, why would anybody want to harm them? I mean, after all, they're just out there trying to convert people, right? They're just out there asking people to make a free will choice, choose Jesus and get saved. And certainly people have had adequate inducement to get saved. I mean, there's all this horrible stuff happening on the planet. If these two were running around saying, choose Jesus today and you can get raptured out of here. If that's what they're out there doing, saying, hey, you get a second chance, just like the left behind books say. If that's what they're out there preaching, why do people dislike them so much? And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Okay, I can see why people are going to start disliking them. By the way, that phrase, fire proceeds out of their mouth, doesn't necessarily mean that they open their mouth and fire comes out of it. It can mean that. Or it can mean that using their mouths, they call down fire. The fire devours their enemies. And if anybody would harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that the rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. How long are the days of their prophesying? Well, we were told that in verse 3, that they will prophesy for 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. During that three and a half years, they have the ability to shut off the sky so there's no rain. A little while ago, we saw how so much of the water supply on planet Earth is being destroyed by the systematic wrath of God. At least they'd be able to get some fresh rain. Oh, no, these two won't allow that either. Again, you can see why they become really unpopular. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. In what city on the planet was our Lord crucified? 
Jerusalem. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem. What is John talking about geographically? Where in the world is he describing all this? Jerusalem. Is this any surprise? No. But I'm just going to demonstrate yet again that this is a very Jewish prophecy. The same way that Jesus in Luke 21 said, if you're in Jerusalem and you see this stuff, flee. Here we read that the two witnesses are going to lie in the street of Jerusalem. It's very Jerusalem-centric here. Their dead bodies will lay in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues and the nations, okay, those are all the Gentiles, the ones who were on the outside. Remember, these are the three and a half years that Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. These are the three and a half years when the nations are going to tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And those people and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. How are people around the world, all tribes, all nations, all peoples, how is everybody all at once in the space of three and a half days going to get to look at their dead bodies laying in Jerusalem? That was an impossible thing to imagine 100 years ago. For the first almost 2,000 years of the church, it was hard to imagine. Then television happened, and satellite television, then the internet. Now, we can completely imagine that over a three and a half year period, people from every corner of the planet are going to be able to access live video of these two who had tormented the planet laying dead in Jerusalem. And the people on the earth mourn over their dead bodies. No, they don't mourn in the least. And nobody gets saved and nobody chooses Jesus. Here's what actually happens. Those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues and the nations will look on their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in tombs. They're not even going to get to be buried. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. And they'll send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So they're called two witnesses. They actually are martyrs. They do actually give up their lives for their testimony of Christ. And just like all the prophets of the Old Testament, they're killed at Jerusalem. Do you remember Jesus right around Matthew 23 and 24 as he's handing out condemnations to Jerusalem? Says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets, you that kill the ones that were sent to you. They're going to do it again. They did it with Jesus. They killed him at Jerusalem. They're going to do it with the final two witnesses at Jerusalem. And those two witnesses here are referred to as prophets who die at Jerusalem. Do you see a theme here? Do you see how God has worked out all of human history in a Jerusalem-centric way? Those who dwell on the earth don't get saved. They rejoice over them. They make merry. They send gifts to each other because these two prophets 
tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. Yeah, I guess. Why, by the way, did they stay dead for more than three days? Same reason Lazarus had to stay in the grave for at least three days. Because the Jewish reckoning of death was they have to be dead at least three days. And so they will lay in the street for three and a half days. Once everybody is absolutely convinced of their complete deadness, God is going to breathe the life back into them. They're going to stand up on their feet Great fear is going to come upon the whole world that is watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into the heavens in a cloud. Who else have we ever seen do that? Jesus Jesus did it. Rose up off the planet in a cloud. He's going to return in a cloud. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. And their enemies beheld it. The people of planet Earth, the live feed on the internet and satellite TV, cameras will be rolling, people with iPhones videoing it at the very moment that these two are going to rise to life from the dead, rise up off the planet, be enveloped in clouds, and all their enemies are going to see it. Can you see why they're afraid? And in that hour, says verse 13, at that moment when they rise up off the planet, if they are what I've been describing them as, the last witnesses, the final two witnesses before the angel flies in the sky and preaches the everlasting gospel so that no one can say they haven't heard it and that they don't know, look what happens when they go up off the planet. In that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming, and the third woe is even worse. Okay, now that's a lot of ink that John dedicated to these two witnesses. So let's talk about who these two witnesses might be. Based on some of the activity that we see from them, like calling down fire from heaven, leads us to believe that one of them could be Elijah. But more importantly, there is a prophecy in the Old Testament that leads us to believe that this could very well be Elijah and somebody else. Turn to the end of the Old Testament. If you can't find the end of the Old Testament, find the beginning of the New Testament and go back one page. The very last two verses of the Old Testament. This is the way that the Old Testament ends. And then there's 400 years of God being silent. And it ends with this promise. It is the book of Malachi. It is chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading at verse 5. We're going to read verse 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament. It is interesting to me that the Old Testament ends with the word curse. Behold, I am sending you who? Elijah. See it right there in your Bible? Do all your Bibles say Elijah there? 
Okay, when? When, God? When are you sending Elijah? Because Elijah, as you know, was taken up in a whirlwind, in a chariot, and didn't die. Instead, he was just caught up. We'll get back to that in a moment. And yet the promise from Malachi is, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. When? Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. What are we reading about in the book of Revelation? The great and terrible day of the Lord. And before that, Elijah is promised to come. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land. What land? Israel. Israel, so that I won't come and smite the land with a curse. So the last promise in the Old Testament is, I'm going to send you Elijah and he's going to do something very specific. He's going to bring the children back to their fathers, to the faith of their fathers, to the teaching of their fathers. They're going to bring the fathers and their hearts back to their children. He's going to restore the community of Israel again so that I do not come and smite the land with a curse. Okay, so Luke 1 You can either listen or you can keep turning. Those of you with iPads and iPhones won't find this as difficult. But Luke 1, Luke 1, I'm just going to read verses 13 to 17. The angel spoke to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and said, Do not be afraid, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's the Malachi promise. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, so the promise before John the Baptist was born. Was that John the Baptist was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Does the text say that he is Elijah? No. No, it says he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Of Elijah. He's going to have that same spirit that Elijah had. Have we ever seen an example before where the spirit and power of Elijah was transferred to somebody else? The answer is yes. In 2 Kings 2.15, this is after Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind, the spirit and power of Elijah lands on his servant Elisha. Elijah said, I'm going to be taken up. Ask me what you want. He said, I want twice as much power as you have. I want a double portion of what's on you. He said, it's not mine to give you. But if you see me go up, then know that your request has been heard by God and he's going to give that to you. So Elijah, as he's going up, his mantle falls off. Elisha goes over and picks up the mantle goes over to the river Jordan, takes the mantle of Elijah, slaps it on the water. The water parts, 2 Kings 2.15 says, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, 
the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed themselves down on the ground before him. Okay, does that text say Elisha became Elijah? No. No. What it says is the spirit and the power of Elijah came upon Elisha. In Luke 1.3, we read that the spirit and the power of Elijah would be on John the Baptist. Didn't say, good news, Zechariah, your wife's about to give birth to Elijah. It's not what it said. You're going to call his name John. He's going to be a separate, distinct person from Elijah, but the spirit and the power of Elijah is going to be on him. In Matthew 17, Jesus is talking to his apostles I'm going to start reading at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. What vision is he talking about? The fact that he was on the mount that we know is the Mount of Transfiguration. They're coming down from that mountain. While they were on that mountain, Moses and Elijah showed up on either side of Jesus. Peter makes the mistake of trying to equate the three and says, let's make a tabernacle for each one of you. Silly Peter. A voice from heaven comes and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And then Peter lifts his eyes and there's nobody but Jesus there. But what did he see before that? He saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. As I said earlier, Moses is the typification of the law. He's the one who wrote the Pentateuch. He's the one who brought the law to Israel. Who is Elijah? He is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. There is a Hebraism when referring to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. That's a phrase that Jesus uses, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Peter looked up, there's Jesus standing with the law and the prophets. Peter tries to equate them, the law, the prophets, and Jesus. Voice from heaven says, no, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And the law and the prophets are gone. Because it's all about Jesus from that point forward. Jesus said, don't tell that vision to anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. That's why we know it now. Because after he rose from the dead, they were now willing to talk about it. His disciples said to him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The scribes, those who were concentrating on the scripture, those who were copying the scripture, those who were in charge of keeping the scripture. Why do they say what we just read in Malachi, that Elijah must come first? When the apostles, Peter, John, and James, looked at Jesus and Moses, did they say, look, Moses and John the Baptist? No. No, and they knew John the Baptist. They knew him by face. That's not who was standing there. Elijah was standing there. Did they say, look, it's Moses and Elisha? No, it's Elijah, separate person. Even though the spirit and the power of Elijah was on Elisha and on John the Baptist. So this is a really good question they're asking. Because now they've seen Elijah. And they say, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said to them, Elijah is coming and will, future tense, restore all things. In other words, the scripture cannot be broken. 
Jesus validated the scripture that yes, Elijah is going to come. No question. But, says verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Okay, so John the Baptist spiritually is Elijah to come in the aspect of paving the way to get ready for the Messiah. He was, just like Zechariah was told, he was the forerunner paving the way for Jesus to come. And he did that in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Jesus validates that. But Malachi also says Elijah is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jesus validated that. In other words, the spirit and the power of Elijah was on John the Baptist. But Elijah himself, he's still coming. He's going to come before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Okay, so what about John the Baptist? Did he think he was Elijah? I mean, he was told by his father, spirit and power of Elijah. But was he Elijah? Jesus just said that Elijah came in John the Baptist. So what does John the Baptist say about himself? Well, in John 1, we're not left to worry about that. John 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed and said, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. His own self-conception was, I am not Elijah. Because Elijah is a different person, even though John operated in the spirit and power of Elijah. They said to him, are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, so who are you? So that we can give an answer to the one who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. I read all that to say, what is John's self-conception? I'm not Elijah. Jesus said, Elijah's going to come, just like Malachi said, despite the fact that John operated in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Oh, I'm running out of time. Can I have 10 more minutes? Has anybody got any place to be? Are you interested in this, or am I alone up here? I think this is all fascinating. First Kings, you don't have to turn there, just listen. First Kings 18, I'm going to read verses 36 to 39, because this is the demonstration of the power of Elijah. You might remember this story. The priests of Baal were just practically numerous within Israel. And so Elijah has set up a contest against them and said, uh, get your sacrifice, make yourself an altar, make your sacrifice, and then pray to your God. And see if your God will accept your sacrifice. And then he mocked them and he ridiculed them because they danced around and they shouted at the heavens. They cut themselves. They bled out. 
as they screamed toward the heavens for their God to answer them. Meanwhile, Elijah was mocking them and said, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's otherwise occupied. Keep yelling at him. Finally, Elijah says, okay, here's what you're going to do with my God. He set his altar back up because in their dancing around, they had knocked his altar down. He sets it back up. He puts his sacrifice on it. And then he says, now go get a bunch of water and drench the wood in water. Drench the sacrifice in water. Do it again. Do it a third time. Three times he drenches the wood. He drenches the sacrifice. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. And then the fire of the Lord, what's he doing? He's calling down fire. It's an Elijah thing to call down fire. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed and burnt the offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench around the altar. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, oh, good, you're converted. Have a happy life. No, that's not what happened. He said, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them all right there. Okay, what's my point in bringing that up? Because Elijah's the prophet who's best known for calling down fire from heaven. He's so well known for being able to do that that at one point, Jesus' own apostles, when they come across an enemy, say, do you want us to call down fire on them? And Jesus says, you don't know what kind of men you are. That's not what I'm here to do. But from that point forward, he refers to John and James as the sons of thunder. He gives them that nickname because they wanted to call down fire the way Elijah does and burn people up. James 5, 17 to 18, Elisha was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half years, sound familiar? For three and a half years, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Okay, and Revelation says, these have the power to shut up the sky in order that it won't rain during the time of their prophesying. How long is that? Three and a half years. You see in the connections here? One last thing. Luke 4.25, this is Jesus talking. But I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when the severe famine came into all the land. So you see all these references to Elijah and to Elijah calling down fire and to Elijah closing up the heavens for three and a half years. One of the two witnesses closes up the heavens for three and a half years. Can you see why people would say, that's probably Elijah? At very least, he's doing Elijah stuff, but Malachi says, Elijah's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
and this is a three and a half year thing, so yeah, I can see where Elijah would be the one who would show up and do these very things that John invested all of this ink in order to tell us the exact things he does, which things drive us back to saying, okay, that's probably Elijah, and it was Elijah who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it is Elijah after all, who has promised to come. And the one that Jesus said, yeah, he's going to come. Jesus validated it. Yeah, he's going to come. So that is all the evidence, what I call the Elijah connection, to convince us or at least give us something to think about whether one of these two witnesses is Elijah. And then because it's Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, people say that the other one must be Moses. Very, very briefly, very, very quickly, I'm just going to say this and we'll be done with it and we'll go home. Deuteronomy 34, 5 to 6, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. He was buried in the valley of the land of Moab, but no man knows his burial place to this day. God showed him the land of milk and honey, showed him the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to go into it. Because the law cannot deliver you into the land of promise. Okay, you get the types in the shadows. And so he was able to see it, but then he died, and then his body disappeared. The assumption is he was buried. If he was buried, it was God who buried him. But then in the book of Jude, we read this very peculiar thing. Jude doesn't have any chapters, just verses. Jude 9 says, But Michael the archangel... When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We don't know anything about that. By the way, there is an ancient book that was validated by Origen, one of the early church fathers, a book that was called The Assumption of Moses that still existed during his time, but it's lost to history. Nobody has it. Nobody knows it. If you go on the internet and you look up the Assumption of Moses, you'll find something that was discovered and published back in 1861. It's not the one that Origen was talking about. The point being this. Moses, no one knows what happened to him. He's, he's gone. Elijah, we know, was taken up. So could it be Moses and Elijah still, who finally die in the streets of Jerusalem? And are then taken up into heaven? Yeah, absolutely. Because we don't have a definite account of the death of either Elijah or Moses. And it is Elijah and Moses who end up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it is Elijah and Moses who are the typification of the Law and the Prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, who Jesus is superior to. Those are the connections that make so many commentators say this is probably Moses and Elijah, especially when you get to the point where it says that they are able to bring about plagues and turn water to blood and smite the earth with plagues. Who in the Old Testament did that? Moses. So do you see the Moses and Elijah connections and why people would say that the two witnesses are probably Moses and Elijah? Now it's perfectly okay with me if it turns out that it's not. It's perfectly okay with me if it turns out that it's two other people. But if it is Moses and Elijah, no surprise, because the connections are all there, the prophecies are there. I'm pretty convinced by it. I think it's probably going to be Moses and Elijah, because who better to come last before the third woe than the same two people who poured out the word of God 
and the prophecies of God to make a light to Israel, to be a light to the world. Who better than them to close the book on that whole chapter of human history to show up at the end of it and one more time be there to declare the sovereign power of God, the majesty of God, and the wrath of God. So that nobody who's being punished on the planet has any confusion about who's doing this. It is God who is doing this. And one more time, it's Moses and Elijah of all people telling the earth that. And nobody repents. You can see why God would pour out the third woe. That's where we're heading. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.